0: G'day, Annie McLaughlin here for this week's edition of Stick Together, focusing on union news, workers' stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR, on the stolen lands of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders, past, present and emerging. Stick Together is broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network, with the support of the Community Radio Foundation, and you're listening to us on your own community radio station. Today we listen to a fascinating talk by Andrew Lee, MP. He's the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury in the Federal Labor Government. It was a talk called How Uncompetitive Markets Hurt Workers, Put On By Per Capita, which sees itself as an independent, progressive think tank, which it would be right in saying has labour tendencies, but most definitely is working to fight inequality in Australia. The talk was fascinating because Lee gives some analysis of why workers' wages are so low, despite productivity increases and now soaring prices. The song
1: 16 Tons was written by Merle Travis in 1946. It's been covered many times, most famously by Johnny Cash. It's about a real group of coal miners who lived and worked in a company town in Muhlenberg County, Kentucky. And the chorus goes, you load 16 tonnes, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St Peter, don't you call me, because I can't go. I owe my soul to the company store. And to Mel Travis, these lines were personal. The first two lines came from his brother. The last two lines came from his father. Both had experienced what it was like to work all day and get paid not in cash but in script, redeemable only at the company store. Folk music fans might also be familiar with Pete Seeger's Homestead Strike song, written about another company town. Homestead, Pennsylvania was a company town built in the 1880s to supply workers to Andrew Carnegie's steel mills. The men worked in the foundries and raised their families in the purpose built town. They made railway lines and bridges and steel for the Empire State Building. A contract between the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers Union and Carnegie Steel was due to expire on the 1st of July 1892. Carnegie gave his operations manager permission to break the union before the contract ended. Wages were cut and workers were locked out of the plant. They went on strike and 3,800 were fired the following day. On the 6th of July, 1892, the steel workers fought for control of the factory in the town against strikebreakers shipped in under cover of night by Carnegie's managers. In a 12-hour gun battle and its aftermath, three strikebreakers and seven workers died. Comedy towns peaked around the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Uh, There was a number of successes and many failures to the capitalist class. But it seems such utopian dreams linger even today. In March 2021, Elon Musk announced plans to incorporate the site of a SpaceX rocket manufacturing and launch facility with a city called Starbase. Presumably it's a trial run for SpaceX company towns on Mars. (laughs) The story of the company town here in Australia is a bit different. Here they were usually established to accommodate workforces in remote places. Roxby Downs, Mount Beauty and Bogong Village, Useless Loop on the West Australian coast, owned by Japan's Mitsui Group. And in case you're wondering, the town's name came from a French explorer who disliked the harbour, not from an economist analysing the way money typically flows around a company town. And then there's the Australian company towns that operate with a fly-in, fly-out workforce, such as Newman or Barrow Island. While company towns have declined, concerns about employer market power have been gaining ground. Some see wannabe modern company towns in situations where a single employer dominates a large portion of the labour force. This is where monopoly and monopsony meet. The trailblazing Cambridge economist Joan Robinson who should have been the first woman to win the Nobel Prize in in economics, is credited with popularising the term monopsony. Building on Adam Smith's concerns over monopoly, Robinson challenged accepted wisdom in her male-dominated profession by rejecting the idea of perfect markets. And that meant contradicting the formidable Alfred Marshall who'd long dominated economics at Cambridge. He argued supply and demand could meet in perfect equilibrium, where workers were paid precisely the value of their contribution to production. This, Marshall said, gave consumers the upper hand because companies had to compete on price and quantity in a competitive market. The problem was Marshall's conviction that monopoly was a passing flaw that would correct itself over time. Joan Robinson disagreed. In 1933, at the age of 30, she published her landmark book, The Economics of Imperfect Competition, Monopoly, she argued, didn't have an on-off switch, and truly competitive markets were rare. In a monopoly, the consumer pays the price set by the supplier. In a monopsony, the supplier accepts the price set by the buyer. Monopolies hurt consumers. Monopsonies hurt suppliers. In the labour market, workers are suppliers. The service they supply is their labour. Now, as citizens, we don't typically think of ourselves as suppliers, but in the labour market, that's exactly what we are. Joan Robinson argued that monopsony was endemic in the labour market and employers were using it to keep wages low. If there's a small number of employers competing for workers, those workers have fewer outside options. Their bargaining power is limited. Therefore, employers have the power to set lower wages. (coughs) In the extreme case, think of the plight of the employees in Mullenberg or Homestead or those other one-company towns. Workers benefit when there's more employers in the labour market. More employment options means greater bargaining power. Workers can swap jobs and move on to better pay and conditions with another employer. Last year, the Journal of Human Resources released a special issue focused on monopsony in the labour market. As the editors of the special issue argued, the idea that firms have some market power in wage setting has been slow to gain acceptance in economics. Indeed, until relatively recently, the textbooks viewed monopsony power as either a theoretical curiosum or a concept limited to a handful of company towns in the past. This view is changing rapidly, driven by a combination of theoretical innovations, empirical findings, dramatic legal cases and new data sets that make it possible to measure the degree of market power in different ways. The concept also caught the attention of competition lawyers. Monopsony was cited in a ruling against Apple in the US Supreme Court in 2019, which found, a retailer who is both a monopolist and a monopsonist may be liable to different classes of plaintiffs, both to downstream consumers and to upstream suppliers when a retailer's unlawful conduct affects both the downstream and upstream markets. Think of iPhone users as consumers in a monopoly market. They're likely to pay more for a product because of the seller's market dominance. When the iPhone 15 hits the shelves in September, there's only one company that'll be selling it to you. But you can also think of Apple's app developers as suppliers in a monopsony they're likely to get less from the product they're selling because Apple has the monopsony on which apps run on its systems. There's a reason that Apple can take a cut of 30% on most in-app purchases because there's only one way of getting an app onto an iPhone. Both suppliers and consumers lose. Monopoly meets monopsony. A report by US House Democrats accused Amazon of using monopsony power in its warehouses to depress wages in local markets. The Democrats described Amazon as acting like a monopsony because of the way it pressured third-party suppliers to lower their prices if they wanted to sell products through the behemoth's platform. These were the characteristics of a monopsony, according to Democrats, because of Amazon's market dominance, interaction with suppliers and behaviour in the labour market. Maybe this is the case of a company town gone global.
0: You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are listening to Andrew Lee, MP, Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, giving a per capita talk, how uncompetitive markets workers.
1: Evidence from the US, UK and Europe has demonstrated that increases in labour market concentration are associated with lower wages. Without market power, economic theory would predict that wages are equal to workers' marginal product of labour. The increase in output as additional labour is used. With market power, an employer can set lower wages, meaning workers producing at a higher level than they're being paid. Studies of the US and Europe find the impact as larger in rural labour markets, potentially reflecting fewer opportunities and larger employer power outside metropolitan areas. Economists have long noted that people in cities tend to earn more than those in regional areas. My own research finds that when someone moves from a rural area to a major Australian city, their annual income rises by 8%. The economics of monopsony suggests that an important part of the urban wage premium might be explained by greater employer competition in denser labour markets. A recent US paper found that workers may produce 21% more than they earn, suggesting significant monopsony power. In other words, for every $1.21 of value that employees produce, they're paid $1 in wages. In areas with few employers, those firms are increasingly wielding their power to suppress wages. In Australia, as in many other nations, wage growth has been slow. The average weekly full time wage in November 2022 was $1,808 a week. In 2002, the average wage in November 2012 was $1,790 a week. In other words, after inflation, Australian workers earned only $18 a week more in November 2022 than they did in November 2012. Fundamental determinants such as productivity and inflation expectations have played a role. But even so, wage growth has been slower than expected. At the same time, the rate at which people move between employers has also fallen. Now forget about what you've heard about the joys of a job for life. Across a career, the biggest wage gains, on average, come when people switch employers. For a worker who's keen on a pay rise, the best chance is to get a new job, or at least a new job offer. So why have job switching rates fallen? And why has wage growth been so slow? Increases in employer concentration and larger impacts of employer concentration on wages could explain both phenomena. A newly researched Treasury working paper by Jonathan Hanboer considers where the labour market concentration lowered wage growth pre-COVID. The paper explores the trends in and impact of monopsony power in Australia. Defining the labour market as the intersection of a region and an industry, it uses rich de-identified tax data to measure concentration in labour markets across the country. Together, the analysis separates Australia into around 25,000 local labour markets per year. And the employment concentration is measured using a Herfindahl-Hirschman Index, which ranges from zero for a perfectly competitive market to one for a monopsony employer. Think one company town. Hamber's research reveals that in Australia, within markets where concentration rose, real wage growth over the decade was significantly lower. Now, on average, larger firms are more productive. Thanks to more capital, more efficient management systems and the benefits of scale, large firms tend to be more productive and pay higher wages. But when a labour market is more concentrated, or when a firm has a larger share of the employment market, the gap between the value of what a worker produces and the wage they're paid tends to grow. And that means large firms set lower wages once other factors, such as productivity, are taken into account. Employer concentration in the Australian labour market is highest in the mining industry, manufacturing, transport, utilities and retail trade. For most of these industries, concentration is higher in the United States. But in the case of mining, employment concentration is slightly higher in Australia. Now the Treasury analysis looks over time and finds that while labour markets haven't become more concentrated the negative impact of any given level of concentration on wages has increased. For a given level of concentration, its negative impact on wages has more than doubled compared to the mid-2000s. Because of this, employer market power could be a factor that's influenced the slow growth of wages over the last decade. The greater impact of concentration, according to Jonathan Hamburg, may have lowered wages by around 1% from 2011 to 2015. And that could explain why the share of productivity gains passed through to workers has declined over the last 15 years. The Treasury analysis finds that declining firm entry and declining economic dynamism appear to be important factors contributing to the increased impact of concentration. When firms enter, they tend to compete and poach staff away from existing firms to grow. As such, they generate better outside options for workers. When entry rates are high, people are more likely to switch jobs. And this relationship's driven by people moving from incumbent firms to young firms. So when entry rates are higher, even if markets are still somewhat concentrated, there's more outside options for workers, lessening the effect of concentration on wages. We've always known that monopolies hurt the average person. By transferring resources from consumers to shareholders they make the typical family worse off, and worsen inequality. But now we can see another effect. If these monopolies also exert monopsony power, they may drive down wages. Workers may get a smaller pay packet because of monopsony power, and then find that when they try to spend it, they get less for their money because of monopoly power. To double-squeeze. Last year, I delivered four major speeches on economic dynamism and competition. I focused on the way in which market concentration has grown and discussed the decline in the start up rate. I outlined the evidence on markups, the gap between costs and prices, and how markups have grown over time. Those findings are highly relevant at a time when inflation is surging around the world. Bigger markups didn't cause our inflation problems, but they're one of the reasons people are paying more than they should for everyday necessities. Monopsony power suggests another mechanism through which declining business dynamism might have lowered wage growth. Monopsony power has weakened workers' outside options and bargaining power, made labour markets less competitive, and therefore Lowered workers' wages.
0: You're on Stick Together, workers' stories, union news and social justice issues. We are listening to Andrew Lee, MP, Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, giving a per capita talk, how uncompetitive markets hurt workers.
1: So, what's to be done? In the area of monopsony power, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has, in the past, taken on misconduct by firms with regard to their suppliers. In a note prepared for the OECD last year, the competition watchdog concluded, Our market studies in a range of sectors demonstrate that buyers' power and the inequality of bargaining power that underlines it creates real risks of potential harm to the effective operation of markets. The Commission pointed to enforcement action under fair trading laws an industry-specific regulation as a cheque on buyers' powers. However, Australian competition law specifically carves out matters relating to earnings, hours or conditions of employment. So I've been unable to identify instances in which the competition watchdog has taken enforcement action against firms engaged in labour market collusion. Now that contrasts with the United States. Where Assistant Attorney General, General Jonathan Cantor recently told a Senate committee hearing One area we've been particularly active is prosecution of criminal conspiracies among employers. Labour market competition is essential to a properly functioning market based economy. Free market competition for workers can mean the difference between saving for a home, sending kids to college, and leaving a toxic workplace or being forced to stay. It also means free market competition for entrepreneurs, small business owners and honest businesses of all kinds who compete to attract and retain talented workers. He went on to say criminal conspiracies in labour markets include wage fixing and allocation agreements that limit worker mobility or suppress wages. Agreements by employers to restrict labour market competition is entitled to no special treatment under the US antitrust laws. We'll continue to prosecute collusion in labour markets that serves no other purpose than to cheat workers of competitive wages, benefits and other terms of employment. In the last two years, the Antitrust Division has brought six criminal cases. Labour market collusion, Jonathan says, is a felony under the Sherman Act. Employees are no less less entitled to the protections of the Sherman Act than our consumers. Anti-competitive practices in the labour market are equally pernicious and are treated the same as anti-competitive practices in markets for goods and services. Now, a particular concern in the labour market are non-compete and no-poach clauses. On one estimate, 18% of US workers are currently subject to a non-compete clause and 38% have been subject to one at some point in their career. Non-compete clauses aren't restricted to high-wage jobs, In the US, non-compete clauses bind 11% of landscapers, 12% of construction workers, 18% of in-stores, 19% of personal care workers. Non-compete clauses make it harder for workers to shift jobs. And even in US states where non-compete agreements are unenforceable, many workers end up signing contracts containing such clauses. No-poach clauses have a similar effect to non-compete clauses by constraining employers from engaging workers who have recently been employed at a competing outfit. In the 1980s to the 2010s, a group of Silicon Valley companies, including Pixar, Apple, Google, Adobe and Intel, colluded in an agreement to not attempt to hire each other's technology workers. Only a lawsuit from the US Department of Justice finally ended the conspiracy... No-poach clauses also turn out to be ubiquitous in franchises. Analyzing US franchise agreements, researchers found that no-poach clauses existed in 58% of major franchisors' contracts, including those of McDonald's, Burger King, Jiffy Lube and H&R Block. In Australia, I've been unable to find any surveys of the prevalence of non-compete clauses. On no-poach clauses, the only evidence comes from an exercise I conducted in 2019, writing to all major Australian franchisors to ask whether their standard franchise agreements included a no-poach clause. Among them, McDonald's, Baker's Delight and Domino's wrote back to me to say that their standard clauses prevent franchisees from hiring workers at other stores. For example, McDonald's told me, told me that each franchise store in Australia must sign a contract that says neither licensee nor principal shall employ or seek to employ any person who is at the time employed by McDonald's or by licensor or by any of the subsidiaries or associated or related companies at McDonald's or licensor or any person who is at the time operating McDonald's restaurant or otherwise induce or attempt to induce directly or indirectly such person to leave employment most McDonald's workers would have no idea about this clause, which directly affects their ability to get a better-paying job at another McDonald's store. Now, to their credit, at least these three retailers, uh, McDonald's, uh, Baker's Delight and Domino's, replied, many of the large franchise chains simply ignored my request. Unlike the US, there's no requirement for their franchise contracts to be publicly lodged, so we can't know the full extent which other franchise chains are reducing the competition for workers. What can policymakers do? Well, in the US, the Federal Trade Commission has concluded that scrapping non-compete clauses could boost worker earnings by almost 300 billion US dollars and close racial and gender gaps by up to 9%. Accordingly, the Federal Trade Commission has now proposed a total ban on non-competes across the US economy. Here in Australia, non-compete clauses are only enforceable if they can be shown to reasonably protect a legitimate business interest. In judging such cases, courts may consider the duration, geographic area and industry reach of the non-compete clause. On this basis, some commentators have argued that the deterrent effect of Australian non-compete clauses on worker mobility is limited. But that ignores the findings from US research that even in states such as California, where non-compete clauses are unenforceable, they still exert an effect. There's a number of reasons for this, including workers not being perfectly aware of all their legal rights, and the financial risk to an employee of facing off against their former employer in court. As one Australian website advises employers, it's easy to insert a non-compete clause into an employment contract. Even if it might turn out to be unenforceable, why wouldn't a rational employer try to block competitors? Given the growing growing body of evidence about the way that non-compete clauses hamper job mobility and wage growth, I've asked the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission and Treasury for advice on the competitive impacts of non-compete clauses and any action the Australian government should take in response. Why should we ban unfair contract terms when it comes to a big business contracting with a small business, yet allow unfair contract terms when it comes to a big business contracting with an individual employee. As to the no-poach clauses and franchise agreements, they couldn't be struck down as an unfair contract term. And that's because the disadvantage is to the employee, who isn't a party to the franchise agreement. But at a minimum, it would be useful to know more about the prevalence of these clauses, I encourage Australia's large franchisors to publicly disclose whether their standard agreements contain no-poach clauses, and if so, to justify why they're in the public interest. Unions also have a critical role to play in curbing monopsony power. In both the US and Australia, the impact of market concentration on wages is smaller when union membership rates are higher. Yet over recent decades, the share of Australian workers who are union members has steadily declined, dropping from 41% in 1992 to 12.5% in 2002. Not since Federation has the Australian unionisation rate been as low as it is today. Deunionisation isn't the primary reason for a decade of wage stagnation. But at a time when the market power of employers is growing, declining union membership Risks tilting the playing field further away from workers.
2: Some people say a man is made out of mud, a poor man's made out of muscle and blood, muscle and blood, and skin and bone. A mind that's weak and a backed head strong You know 16 tons and what do you get Another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Picked up my shovel and I walked to the mine I loaded 16 tons of number nine coal And a straw boss said, well, I bless my soul you loaded 16 tons and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt Say, Peter, don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store Sold to the company store. If you see me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, and a lot of men died. One fist of iron and the other of steel. If the right one don't get you, then the left one will. You load sixteen tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store